is titled Hurry Up and Wait. I laughed because I figured Eric would appreciate that one too. But that is something that you get used to in the military. But hurry up and wait. We've been working through uh, Romans, and I had to jump ahead. I'll put up the other sermons uh, from uh, chapter 6 through 8 up on Spotify and then on YouTube. And uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 9 today. The anchor text for today is Romans 9, 25 through 26. And I think I had that up there. Oh, we forgot that one. Just skip ahead. We'll come back to that. And I have the verse up there. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. There's one more. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And here Paul is referencing Hosea. I was praying about what to talk about today. And uh, one of the things, a popular thing that I've noticed is the question, where is God? What is God doing? Why does it seem like God's taking a long time? Uh, Why does it seem like God has favorites? That's one that popped up too. I love Reddit because you can find any sort of question on there. Has God failed us? There's actually a subreddit thread on has God failed us. Don't look at it. It's depressing. Why is he taking so long? And where is God's justice? There are extreme, these are extremely valid and common questions. Faith in the gospel are easy to talk about, but they do us no good if God has failed us. It is okay to admit that you have questioned God and has his activeness in your life and in the world today. We are facing continual variants of COVID, even new stealth variants. That just seems crazy to me. Several hundred companies terminated over 300,000 employees uh, this past year due to the pandemic, and yet you will hear about a continual worker shortage. If you follow threads, like I mentioned Reddit, such as anti-work that was featured in the news, you will see employers treating employees horribly. Watch the news and you see a world that is split, fractured, and seemingly on the brink of collapse and chaos. It seems like everyone and everything is at a breaking point. I think you would all agree with me. So it is natural to ask the questions, has God failed us? Is God unjust? What is God waiting for? I want to jump ahead in Romans chapter 9 to verses 14. So if you're following along in your Bibles, we're going to start this at Romans 9:14. What shall we say then? Is, this, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on those I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you power in you, my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom whoever he wills and hardens whoever he wills. Verse 19, you will say to them then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made us like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, 
which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, here they will be called the sons of the living God. There's some things we need to unpack and absolutely need to understand here. First, a realistic and healthy view that God is God and we are his creation. He doesn't have to answer to us. He can do whatever he wants. We see this perfectly throughout the book of Job. God confronts Job over the very questions that we often ask today. Who is this that darkens counsel by my words and knowledge? God talks to Job. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Have you caused the sun to rise and the moon to set? Did you separate the day from the night? Do you cause it to snow or to rain? A healthy view of what God does is the second aspect. God decides who he has mercy and compassion on. This is a tough pill to swallow. Because he is God and again he created us. He has authority over those whether they believe or not perfect example is that pharaoh didn't believe in god and yet god still used pharaoh to bring about his plan this can seem harsh i don't know about you but sometimes we need to be reminded that god didn't have to be loving um, if he didn't want to but that isn't the case throughout scripture believers have often uh, seen humanity's position with god and he has to remind them the best example of this is when a parent is well loved You get along with and have a good time. You're hanging out with that parent. As a child, you might push boundaries, push the rules, and then wham. You do something, and your parent has to remind you that they are the parent and you are the child. Usually, and I can remember this very often with my dad, usually you feel hurt. You feel like, oh, they're just being too harsh, and you recoil from it. Yet, slowly you will remember that this doesn't change the reality of the parent's love for you, that who they are or anything about their relationship. This is exactly what Paul is writing to the Romans in chapter 9. God is above us. He doesn't have to answer us. Work according to our time. Do what we think he should do and act when he thinks he ne- we think he needs to act. So God, does God actively keep or not allow some people to be saved? What do you guys think? No. There are some denominations that believe this. And this is, I'm a nerd about it, but this is a whole different, there's about six or seven different types of predestination. But the question is, so does God actively keep or not allow some people to be saved? And in overwhelming through scripture, we see that, no. I've struggled with this personally because I've often felt like I just cannot do what's right. That no matter what, it just seems like sin seems like more fun and that is what I want to pursue. A lot of times this term is referred to as a reprobate, and they can't get it right. No matter how much they want to, it seems that though God has their finger on them and saying, no, you can't do this, and yet that is not the case. As we can see by the song, uh, Reckless Love, that we attempted to sing, is that there isn't a mountain high enough or a wall thick enough that God won't come after us. And again, thankfully that that is not the case. I've had to lean on the deep truths of God's love, often in my own personal time. God's grace, God's forgiveness, and the ability to be saved and to get onto a better plan for life extends to anyone and everyone 
that wants, it's anyone and everyone that stops and says, I want Jesus and his way. How do I or you and I know this? How can you know this in those dark nights of depression and doubt? In those times that you've struggled countlessly and failed, you've missed the mark, your hope is fading, you've prayed and begged, but the struggle is harder. How can you know? Paul writes in uh, Romans 10.13, and we'll look at Romans 10 next week, is he says this, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to repeat that. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Often we overcomplicate things. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.4 and says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That again is in 1 Timothy 2.4. This is a theme of God and isn't new to the New Testament, which often shocks people. I want to jump back at the Old Testament, where God is often seen as harsh, warlike, angry, bloodthirsty, and unfair. If you want to turn, you can turn to Ezekiel 18, 5, 1 through 20, uh, verse 5 through 23. Ezekiel 18, 5 through 23. Man, having that furnace blow right on me. I'm like, dry my mouth out. Okay, Ezekiel 18, starting in verse 5 uh, through verse 23. Suppose a certain man is righteous and does what is just and right. He does not feast in the mountains before Israel's idols or worship them. He does not commit adultery or have intercourse with a woman during her cycle. He is a merciful creditor, not keeping the items given as security by poor debtors. He does not rob the poor, but instead gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He grants loans without interest, stays away from injustice, is honest and fair when judging others, and faithfully obeys my decrees and regulations. This is God speaking to Ezekiel. Then God says this, Anyone who does these things is just and will surely live, says the Sovereign Lord. But suppose that man has a son who grows up to be a robber or a murderer and refuses to do what is right, and that son does all the evil things that his father would never do. He worships idols on the mountains, commits adultery, oppresses the poor and helpless, steals from the debtors by refusing to let them redeem their security, worships idols, commits detestable sins, and lends money at excessive interest. Actually, I love modern translations. It actually is, you're not supposed to lend money at any interest, but at excessive interest. Should, should such a sinful person live? And God overwhelmingly says, no, he must die and must take full blame. Verse 14, but suppose this sinful son in turn has a son who sees his father's wickedness and decides against that kind of love. This son refuses to worship idols on the mountains and does not commit adultery. He does not exploit the poor, <clears throat> but instead is fair to debtors and does not rob them. He gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He helps the poor, does not lend money at interest, and obeys all my regulations and decrees. God says such a person... person person will not die because of his father's sins he will surely live but the father will die for his many sins for being cruel robbing people and doing what was clearly wrong among the people verse 19 what you ask doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins no for if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees that child will surely live the person who sins is the one who will die the child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. 
Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. But if wicked people turn away from their sins and begin to obey my decrees and do what is just and right, they will surely live and not die, and all their past sins will be forgotten, and they will live because of the righteous things they have done. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die? Says the sovereign Lord. Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. Actually, throughout the book of Isaiah, there's four or five sections uh, in several chapters where Jesus pleads and says, Turn back, turn back. I do not desire the death of the wicked. God speaks continually, as I said, throughout Ezekiel. It's a follower of God turns from following God, then God's judgment falls on him. But if a person stops even the worst sins you can ever think of and starts to follow God, they will be saved and their sins remembered no more. That's a promise God makes to Ezekiel and to us. God pleads with his people, I do not want to see you die. I'm not the one that takes pleasure in the death and destruction. So stop it. Stop what you are doing and I can save you. I want to save you. I have a better plan for you. Just stop and follow me. Even though God has the authority to save and damn whoever he wants, whenever he wants, he has chosen to save as many people as possible, as easily as possible. God has chosen to use the believer and non-believer alike in his redemption plan. We have this idea about justice, fairness, and how things should be. And yet we forget that in believing in God, there is an exchange that has to take place in order to fully embrace that God is, what God is, who God is, and what he has for us. That is the real nature of surrender and exchange. You come to God from a place of believing and confess and say, I want to be saved, I need to be saved, and I believe in you. Then at that pivotal moment of, of encountering who you are and who God is, a transformation has to take place. You give up your ideals, your practices, and how you've done things. And let me tell you, you will always struggle and you will always fail at this, but you continually have to go back to the cross. Your plan, your ideas are the ones that have continually gotten you in your messes in the first place. So why not surrender to God? God in exchange promises to pour out on you his love, his grace, his peace, and his redemption. I lost my spot here. With that transformation comes continual surrender to God's will. That we are not always going to see the full picture, the universal outcome of what is happening. All we ever see is a pin mark on a mile-wide canvas. Paul uses the illustrations here of a potter and a clay, you know, potter and clay, for you and I to demonstrate our relationship with God in order to push us to look back at the story of Hosea. Was it fair that God commanded Hosea, a God-fearing man, an Old Testament prophet who had a close relationship with God, who worked hard and had a life and decent reputation to marry a prostitute? What do you guys think? Was it fair that God asked him to do that? According to us, no. No. That's too nice. No. Where is the justice in a man who had it together to continually put himself at risk, and we forget, of STDs, of shame and humiliation, emotional distress, insecurity, and financial strain, all because God had a message he was sending to his people, and Hosea needed to marry a prostitute. Hosea even has two kids with Gomer, and if you read carefully, there's actually no telling if they are actually his children. 
but he adopts them anyways. He loves them anyways. Gomer continually cheats on Hosea time and time again. We will look at this, uh, this as just a story often, but we forget that this is actually a book written by Hosea about what he has gone through. This actually happened. Hosea exchanged his will for God's will when he chose to follow God. And I honestly hope that none of us ever, when we encounter that exchange, God says, go marry a prostitute. But when you look at the bigger picture, the story's much deeper because God always has a plan. You have to remember the pinprick on a mile-wide canvas. Gomer's name actually means complete in Hebrew. That's all it means, complete. And Hosea's name means salvation. When they were together, their names meant complete salvation. Apart, it represented incomplete salvation. This is our relationship with God. We need to understand that salvation is always there, but we have to be willing to go and take part and be with that salvation. We need to understand that the suffering, the pain, the struggle, the injustice, the fairness, it all has a purpose even if we don't see it, even if we don't see it in this lifetime. We are not going to always see it. God uses the believer and the unbeliever to all bring about his plan whether they want it or not. He is always in control, even when it doesn't seem like it, and that's where faith comes in. Some of us experience and realize, realize, like Gomer did, being bought back at the slave market, how far God's love reaches us. We have to recognize that God's idea of justice and fairness far exceeds our own. The reason is because he is God's. He has the authority. He has the power. He created. He watches over. And he paid the price. The next time we are in the middle of our darkest night, our deepest struggle, remember there is a bigger picture. It is hard and you are going to fight and ask yourself, how can God use this to teach me? How can God use my struggle to reach other people? You aren't going to see the plan, but you can be certain of the outcome of that plan. That is faith. Oh man, this shrunk on my notes. Microsoft Word, get it together. We keep walking even in the valleys, valleys, even in the dark shadows. When we cannot see our hands in front of our faces, because we are overwhelmed, we just keep going. Our relationships have fallen apart. Our jobs have been lost. Our addictions constantly grab and pursue us. Our depression weighs down. Our anxiety presses us. And yet we have to keep going. We cannot think. Do we think that we cannot do it anymore? God has left us. God is unfair. God isn't just. God is silent. God isn't some being who is just watching us like a scientist watching a lab experiment. He isn't observing us like we live in a fishbowl. He is hanging on the cross next to us. He is living with us, living inside us. He is right there in the depression, the addiction, and the anxiety. He is right there in the failures and the brokenness. He is the only God that does this. That's what sets God apart from all the other gods. If you research, his kingdom is the only God that their kingdom has come. And his kingdom is a kingdom of doing. Because God's ways are so much better and greater than our ways, does it seem like the chaos of the past couple years only keeps getting worse? Yes. Yes, but instead of hiding, building our walls, cutting ourselves off, the world is screaming of its deep need for Jesus. When we see on the news that there's another variant, there's another invasion, another war, another pain, another failure, we need to recognize that God is still at work. 
God is allowing those to demonstrate to all creation that all creation needs mercy. God is demonstrating that all creation needs love. And God is demonstrating that all creation needs saving. Our biggest problem today is that we separate the religious from the secular in order to protect ourselves. We create this idea... Now it's turning off on me. We... What happened? We create... Oh, Microsoft, you're killing me. We create this idea that there is a world where God exists, and then there is a world that God stays out of, or God away from, and we need to not go into. And this couldn't be more of a pharisaical mindset. If this were true, then Hosea would have never gone to another man's home to retrieve his wife. He would have never divor- he would have divorced her or simply just let her live her life and he lives his, never pursuing her because he didn't want to associate with her bad choices. Hosea would have never gone to the slave market with this mindset. Jesus would have never gone into Zacchaeus' house and had dinner with him. Jesus would have never gone to Samaria. Jesus would have never allowed people to touch him. Jesus would have never allowed himself to die on the cross reserved for criminals and rebels if he would have had our mindset that we often have of secular and sacred worlds people can have strange ideas about god his laws the religious and the secular growing up there was an idea that god doesn't go into movie theaters that their guardian angels wait outside and i remember hearing this as a teenager and i honestly thought to myself that i had discovered a giant loophole i can go into a movie theater and do whatever i want and god doesn't know what I'm doing because it's his blind spot and I can come out and look squeaky clean. I remember catching myself having church friends and non-church friends. The list could go on and all it is is a way of us to justify our spiritual fortifications, to set ourselves apart from the pain and suffering in the world, the chaos that sin creates. When we build these spiritual fortifications, we keep Jesus out. He is out there in the chaos. He is in the movie theater whispering in folks' ears that maybe, just maybe, you should not be watching this movie. It is always interesting to me, and don't get me wrong, I catch myself doing it too, that we will complain about God being slow, God being unjust, and God being unfair, and yet we aren't giving God what he wants. We aren't going out and being the believer being the church that we are called to be in order to help God accomplish his goals and demonstrate his authority so we can end this mess. In all honesty, I am glad that God's justice isn't like ours because if it was, none of us would be good enough to be saved. I am glad that God's justice isn't like ours because how um, cold is our love today that we would just wish God would come back um, focusing on our lives and yet forget all about those people out there that are lost in their legalism or hedonism and would never know about Jesus. I'm glad that justice of Jesus doesn't depend on whether I follow the law or not. That Jesus is going to leave everything and come after me, pursue me, and save me in my lawlessness, in my darkness, and in my brokenness. No matter where, Jesus is going to pursue you. Paul continually reminds us that we cannot weigh ourselves by what we do. Paul says in verse 30, What does this all mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel, who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, never succeeded. And why not? 
because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of trusting in him, what Paul writes. The introduction of Romans chapter 9 is often felt out of place to me. Up until uh, verse 6, it is a personal appeal by Paul. It says this, Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My consciousness and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Paul is genuinely stating to those believers in Rome that he would give up his own personal salvation and position with Christ in order for his close friends to be saved. We forget that Paul was a human being just like us. He, in a moment on the road to Damascus, was confronted with the reality of Jesus and presented with a choice. Change your life or lose your life. Paul had friends. Paul had an education. Paul had wealth, status, family. He had a life. We often forget that. He had worked hard for what he had. He had built relationships. And we can be certain that they walked away from him. Imagine the hurt and the pain of that. He experienced the reality of Jesus, the freedom of the gospel, the love and meaning to everything he'd been taught, but he'd lost everything else in return. Imagine your whole life thinking back on those close to you. Maybe they are stuck in their legalism, like a Pharisee, or maybe they are stuck in their brokenness, like Hosea's wife. Would you be willing to give up everything just to see them encounter Christ? Because if not, I want to challenge you that maybe you haven't encountered Christ or the gospels yourself then you probably don't understand and haven't experienced the Gospels. P.T. Forsyth, an early 20th century theologian, wrote, You and I will not, after all, wait so long or pay so much for the renewed world as God has done. This is why the justice of God is slow. It is on the scale of the whole universe, and it forgets none at last. It is sure, it is comprehensive, and not even death can stop or hinder it. Instead of complaining at God, instead of wishing for God, go out and demonstrate God. Instead of uh, waiting, go out doing. Instead of hiding, go out finding. Instead of separating, go out reconciling. Our world screams for Jesus, and they are going to find him. Are they going to find him in you? Are they going to find him at this church that we are building? Go out and show Jesus even has the authority over sin and the authority to save. All right, let's bow our heads.